my days. It's the hundredth episode of the Making Conversations Count Show. I'm Wendy Harris, and today we're going to be making conversations about three things that make a business successful count. And we're going to be doing it a little bit differently. 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 Now, if you're a regular listener, you will already know that I speak to business leaders who are experts in their field every week on a special topic that affects us in business. Now, that doesn't have to be sell me this pen or what's the difference between your ball bearings and their ball bearings and why should I pay a point one pence more? There is so much to running a business that it affects us as individuals, that it affects the people that we work with and the people that we live with. And it's those topics that I love to explore because the whole point of the show is to bring stories, conversations and motivational inspiration for you, the listener, so that you are inspired to go and try these things out for yourself. Now, the show for me, when it started back in 2020, I had no idea that I would be sitting here today on episode 100. That means I've had 99 conversations with business leaders. And those conversations have been on all sorts of things. We have touched on mental health. We have touched on mental wealth. But there seems to be three pillars of topics that make a successful business. And those episodes fall in line with sales, marketing and strategy. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into carrying on the conversation on those three topics. But first, I want to explain why we're delving deeper. We carry on the conversation with our bonus episodes every Sunday where Neil and I, the producer, always reflect on what we took away from the show. And really, that's taking it away from the guest. There is always so much insight from every single guest that I could have really picked somebody ultra influential as a headline guest for the 100th show. But to me, that would be really difficult because of the 99 conversations I've already had, every single one is a star in the sky in their own right. So we're going to shine a light back on those conversations. Brace yourself for the best bits. It's time for me to thank every listener because without your listens, the show would have no purpose. Without you reaching for the call to action when I've asked you to vote for me in categories for the British Podcast Awards. I would never have travelled to London this year to see the show and its name and its artwork 
and be given a fancy cushion to take home up on that stage. It was a fantastic experience and I learned an awful lot. There's been some seriously exciting moments and the learning has been incredible because the value that the conversations bring to me are also deeply personal. So thank you again for listening. If there's anyone you know that should be listening to the show because you've took something away from it, please share it with them. We'd be hugely grateful. So let's go back to those three things that make a successful business. Sales, marketing and strategy. That kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? But for me, the idea of a successful business comes from the strategy first. And that's where we're going to start. Talking to Brad Sugars, it was clear as the world's leading business coaching organisation that there were a couple of things that were really fundamental in line with having a strategy. And the key moment that we anchored on with Brad was the read a book a week. You know, I'm going to go back to Jim Rohn, who I mentioned earlier. At the end of that event at 16 years of age, I went down to Mr. Rohn to have him sign my notes. And uh, he'd taught two things during the day that really stood out to me. And the first of those was never wish your life were easier, wish that you were better. You know, and then the second thing was work harder on yourself than you do on your job. So if I keep working on me, I would get better. Therefore, life would get easier. If I want to be better at sales, if I get better at sales, sales gets easier. If I get better at marketing, marketing gets easier. All the different aspects to it. As I had him sign my notes, I said, Mr. Owen, is there anything you can tell me as a young man that will guarantee my success? He said, this very simple young man, read a book a week for the rest of your life. Not a month or every two months or every two weeks. It's a book a week for the rest of your life. So I started doing that. I'm now thousands of books in. And these days, I can almost do a book a day. Uh, I found a little app that, uh, called Headway that gives me book summaries of all the best books in the world. So in 20 minutes, I can listen to an entire book or a summary of an entire book. Wow. And so I sit down and I go back to that point of Mr. Rohn giving me that insight into you know, if I read a book a week for the rest of my life, I'm guaranteed to be successful. Because if you go 10 years, a book a week, that's 520 books. Now, you think about the knowledge acquisition in, in 10 years of 520 books. You can't have a less successful life if you've read 520 books about success or money or business or, or just any of that. And that's why when I built my 30X, so I have three programs that I teach now and they're all online programs. It's, it's 30 minutes a day for 30 days uh, and that's why it's called 30X. So you 30 times your knowledge in 30 minutes a day for 30 days, uh, 30X business, life and wealth. So I take the three main functions of creating success, go to life, understand all the life success principles, understand the business success principles and the wealth success principles and I think it's important for business people and people that want to be in business and, and just anyone to study. Now, that sounds like a lot, but when it comes to self-help books on lots of different topics, 
you could actually apply it to audiobooks or podcasts or searching out YouTube content on a particular topic that will help in your development. So that was really important to highlight Brad's conversation. Then we had David Holland, who was a business coach and business co-pilot, as he calls himself. And we got to talking about why you ought to have a coach. One of the questions that I ask people when we first, because being a, as a business coach, and we work on, with people in their business, sort of thing. My view is that the business is there to grow and develop in order to support the lifestyle that you want and the contributions you want to make and the, you know, whatever you want to achieve. But for, I think for too many people, it's the other way around. They get, they build this business and it becomes all encompassing. It's their time, their passion, and it just you know, sucks them in. And then they can go to a, you know, a networking event and say, yeah, I've got a, you know, a 1 million business or a 2 million business, whatever you like to call it. And they may have the brand new Range Rover in the car park but that's not what it's all about. It doesn't really matter. It's got to support the, yeah, what do you want to do with your life and contribution? You know, we, for example, we wanted to work three days a week. That was it. The business runs in three days a week and, and it does. It works three days a week, which means we can travel. We can do other things. We can do projects. We're, this is a renovation project we're doing down here in France. You may have seen. And uh, this is the only beer the place is painted, so I can't show you anywhere else. But we couldn't do that. If we were working five, six days a week in the business, we couldn't do that. And this was part of our dream. So the personal dream comes first and you build the business to satisfy the dream, not the other way around. No, I agree with that work to live, not live to work. Absolutely. Um, my husband sometimes says that back to me. I'm like, <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do, honestly, I do, I do, I work to live. This is something else, isn't it? The business owners get embroiled in the it's my business and it's personal and this has come up with previous lots of previous guests that mm -hmm. you know switching off is really hard so yeah. whilst you've got your time in the diary as three days a week and yeah. stop you from thinking about it no no absolutely not and then this is why it's so important to do something that we love doing you're right when i'm working with you know, clients and doing a workshop on there three days a week when it comes to the friday and when we're you know, digging the garden or something doesn't mean we're not thinking about it it's always there and I, it's like a we treat our business as a person another entity another person in the family we talk to the business we liaise with the business we're thinking about them as, as we go along and that's absolutely fine but that's why i think it's really important to choose something that you enjoy doing we didn't enjoy running a transport recruitment business it was just not we weren't made for it. This, uh, we are, therefore, it's not a job, really. I would never say this to my clients, but I might do. But, you know, I, I sort of do this so I didn't get paid, actually. We do, we do that so to run everything else. But I actually enjoy what I do. I enjoy speaking with people, supporting them and all that we do. And I don't mind if I think about it seven days a week. It's all part of the fun. So it's about finding your passion and what you're good at, what your natural ability is and going just going for it, isn't it? Really? Absolutely, yeah. He's only just, just stepping through and, and making it happen. Even when we didn't know what coaching was all about 20 years ago, we hoped, thought, believed it was the right thing. And it turns out it was, I mean, thank goodness. But you have to take a little bit of a risk. You, you know, leaving your career, your corporate path, whatever career you've been on, into this creating something for yourself. Even if you're running your own business, you want to change direction. It's a bit of a leap of faith, but uh, in principle, it's, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. It made some really good arguments around the reasoning for having a, a coach. 
and how to pick a good coach. And of course, it does boil down to personality and being accountable. But most of all, I think it was about being pressed to be better. Now then, we had another Dave, Dave Plunkett, join us as the collaboration junkie. And it's obvious, isn't it, that you need to have collaboration partners in order to grow your business. There are always going to be affiliate businesses that could be solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, very small businesses that complement one another. I was running a business that was doing that was doing well enough, all and, and completely with partnerships at its core. But I just wasn't enjoying doing it. It had become very process driven. I wasn't, I wasn't speaking to many people. I wasn't. It wasn't community led. I didn't feel I was delivering much personal value. It was very process uh, driven. And this was end of twenty nineteen. I was like, no, I need to. Something's not right here. Um, I'm really not enjoying doing what I do. And I uh, decided I need to offer more personal value. And I looked at kind of what I knew and it was partnerships. And I was, I was like, you know what? Everything I've done has been built around collaboration and partnerships. The, the membership organization we had grew to a couple of thousand members almost entirely through either strategic partners or referrals. So I built a business that way. And then the business I was running, the, the benefit business, we worked in partnership with a load of different benefit providers to provide them to provide them leads. So had all this experience on being the other side of a more lead generation focused partnership. And I'd seen some good, but I'd seen much, much, much more bad. And I was like, there's this, all this information here in my head. Like, this is the thing I'm going to get out and speak on because I'm passionate about it. And um, I know it would add value. I know it would add value to people. And so that was, the start of 2020, I think I put something on LinkedIn about, right, I'm doing this, I'm going to write a book, and this is what I'm going to do, uh, with the intention being of the business that I wasn't particularly enjoying ticking along, and then COVID came, and that business got wiped out by COVID, and it really made me focus all on doing what I do now, which was, so that, but at its core, it came from, yes, it came from a knowledge of um, lived experience of partnerships, but it came from a place of not enjoying what I want, what I was doing, and wanting to put that fun back in my life and and also get other people excited about partnerships because it's a great, it's a really fun way of collaborative, collaborative working. It's a really fun way of working. And I focus on lead gen at the moment is probably is where I focus more of my time because A, people can put a, an ROI on lead gen, which people like, but also that thing about having fun for a lot of business owners, lead generation is the bit in their business they don't like. So it's about building those relationships. And as I always say, it's not what you know, it's not who you know, but it's what you know about them so that you can explore fully the ways of being able to work together that doesn't detract from you owning your own company. But the icing on the cake did really come with the conversation that I had with Nick Cramp. 
he highlighted the fact that we can all be very, very busy working in the business and find the time to do anything different is really difficult. And on social media, you will see really big names talking about the working on your business, finding the time to step out from it so that you can see the bigger picture. So looking for the answer led you to realise that you were better suited being somewhere else than where you found yourself. Yeah, and that wasn't by design. That was on reflection years later. I ended up having to close one business and sell the other business. The recession came and there was just not the margins in the business to continue them, and they were both in the leisure kind of luxury sector. So as soon as a recession comes, that's the spend that's hit. Mm. So fortunately for me, in hindsight, although it didn't feel fortunate at the time, I had to close one, I had to sell the other. And that forced my hand. And looking back, as we do with the benefit of hindsight, that was the best thing that happened to me. It didn't feel like it. And there was consequences, obviously, at the time of closing them and selling them. But it then got me the distance to be able to see what was actually in play and what was actually happening, rather than having 60 people and 1,500 customers relying on me. It was just me. The responsibility of being a business owner, isn't there, that you've... Yeah. Yeah. It kind of creeps up on you. I don't think you realise until you haven't got it. It's like taking a rucksack off your back. Suddenly it's like, wow, this feels right. Yeah. I was having a conversation a while ago with Rob Cressy and he said it's like having an anvil on your chest. And this is kind of where, you know, hearing what you were saying that it was not by design, it's not in alignment then with where you should be and what you should be doing. Yeah. So did the MBA then give you a broader perspective and that distance to be able to design what came next? Yeah, the MBA made me realise there was lots of different ways of doing this and there were better ways of doing it. So it gave me that insight into other businesses and what was happening in the outside wider world. This was, you know, a lot of this was pre-internet and a lot of this was when you were very insular with your businesses. Yes. You can just jump on a Zoom and learn from others. That wasn't an option. There wasn't online training programs. You know, as a leader, you were really isolated. You didn't have the availability of resource you have today. So I left, obviously, and moved on from that. And I started assisting friends and families with their businesses that morphed into coaching. And I learned that what I realized, what I loved was working on businesses rather than working in businesses. And what I was actually quite good at was helping others with their mindset and working with them on how to address their challenges in a coaching capacity. So I kind of stumbled into coaching almost by default rather than by design. But once I got there, I realized that everything I'd done previously had given me the experience and the knowledge to play that role for others. So the person I lacked when I ran my businesses was me. I needed someone to actually help me detach from the day-to-day. I needed someone to force me to sit with a blank piece of paper and write a strategy for next year. All of the stuff I didn't do, 
I now make sure my clients do. If you imagine the Titanic, if there is an iceberg in front, how do you avert the iceberg? Now, that's a, a big metaphor but and an analogy that we can all relate to. And I'm not suggesting that things are that bad when it comes to being so busy working in the business. But it did give me pause to think that there is time in the diary that you need to set aside to do your planning, to do your future thinking. So the strategy side of things that I've taken away from these business conversations has really helped support me too in my business. I've now got a bookshelf of self-help development books that I'm slowly working through. And it may be that I need to find out about one particular topic and it just so happens that there's a book on my shelf waiting for me that's like my own little library. Or I would spend some time researching something on YouTube. And that was reinforced through Brad. And working with a business coach has really helped fundamentally have some key questions in answer to my own self-doubt or imposter syndrome that we all have when we start to question ourselves. And it's just by having one simple phrase. Is that true, Wendy? So ask yourself, is that true? And of course, those relationships with people, that's what I'm all about, building relationships, but also about retaining those relationships and looking after those relationships, which is why on every single piece of article that I put out there, I invite people to my diary with, through a chin wag. You never know where a conversation is going to lead. And of course, I do have time where I sit and I work on the business. So that's helped me. I hope that it has helped you too. And if you've not listened to any of those episodes, do go back and revisit them. We'll pop the links in the show notes. So that's the strategy side of things and the sales and marketing still to go. Now, we've had this argument and an agreement from most guests when this comes up in conversation. And that is that marketing comes before the sales. So let's dive in to those conversations around marketing. First up, I was deeply honoured to be joined by Dr. Ivan Meisner on episode 14, really early in my podcasting days. Your network is a beacon of hope in a sea of fear. Yeah. They are the people that are there to help you and to support you. And we have certainly have seen that in this last year. And I think we're going to need to continue to see it for part of this year, at least. I think it'd be sort of unrealistic to expect anything to change overnight. B&I in itself has just proven that you can continue to thrive. Imagine if this had happened in the late 80s or 90s. There would be almost no way to stay connected with people, at least with the technology that exists. Yes, it's two-dimensional, but we can see each other and have conversations with each other. We can have meetings 
And BNI has continued to have our meetings worldwide via our online platform, BNI Online, as opposed to in person. And if this had happened 20 years ago, I would have literally seen the company that I've worked my entire life for go up in viral smoke. Yeah. There are some small blessings that it didn't happen sooner. Certainly in terms of the storm that we're in, everybody's in that same storm, but they're dealing with their own individual circumstances. What would you say is your best advice to sort of weather it out? I think you've got to activate your network, sit down and have conversations with them. I've seen people during the COVID pandemic do some amazing things. And most of them came out of doing online one-to-ones with people. Two that really stand out in my mind. One was a furniture reupholstery company in the US. And she had to let go of all of her employees because it's hardly an essential business. And this was back in March, April of 2020. And she did a one-to-one with one of her BNI members. And the member just had an offhanded comment. He said, you have a lot of cloth, don't you? And she said, I literally have tons of cloth. And he said, have you thought about making COVID masks? And she said, no, I hadn't. He said, you know, you could go into the COVID mask manufacturing business to hold you over during at least the first few months of this. And so she went out and made 100 masks and gave two of them to each one of her BNI members and a few friends and said, one's for you. One, would you be kind enough to give it to a hospital worker, you know, a nurse, a doctor, a senior center employee, somebody that really, really needs these masks and give them my card and let them know that I'm now making these. She got so many orders, she was able to rehire her entire workforce because now she became an essential business. And she rehired her workforce and they physically distanced. I don't like the term social distancing. We need to be more social than ever. And she hired them all back and she got into the COVID mask manufacturing business. I talked to a member in Australia who had a brewery and he had to close down his brewery. But somebody in a one-to-one said, you have a lot of alcohol, don't you? And he said, yeah, of course. Uh He said, have you thought about making hand sanitizer? And he said, no. And so he went in the hand sanitizer business. I know exactly who to blame for the gin shortage now. (laughs) (laughs) It's been amazing. And it's all happened where people got focused by fear as opposed to being frozen by fear. He was such a gentleman. He's very rehearsed. He knows exactly what it is that he wants to say. And he imparts the information really, really well. And I can only thank Ivan for giving up his time to join me and to talk about networking and the power that networking has and the attitude and approach that we need to have to networking. And it's much like collaboration with Dave Plunkett in the strategy camp. And that is that it is net working. You go and work it at it. And it takes time to build and to learn how to represent yourself and to qualify the people in the room. And he made a very, very good point about who you let into your room. Now, when I say lazy marketing, that's the strap line that Al Tepper uses. The philosophy of lazy marketing is all about helping people do less and get more. And the reality is that works all the time. Mm. Absolutely. Because most people subscribe to the school of thought of 
it is best illustrated from a, a bumper sticker I once saw in America in the 90s. And it said, look busy, Jesus is coming. In business, what we do is we're like, right, business is good, but it could be better, get busier. We must work harder. That's It's going wrong because we're not working hard enough. And the reality is that's not true. No, it's about working smart, not hard, right? Well, you know, there's efficient things you can do. There's automation. There's outsourcing. There's outtasking. You can employ people. There's so many ways you can do stuff. But the problem is when a small business starts, let's look at who it started by. It started by an entrepreneur and or somebody who needs to make some money. They've lost their job or they've left their job. They want to go out on their own. They might not be that entrepreneurial, but they definitely want to make their own living. And so they're sick of being told what to do. And everyone that told them what to do didn't know what they were doing. And so they know how to do it better. And so they now build something and they don't let go of anything because the way they build it is by not letting go of it. Because um, they don't trust anybody off. else because Correct. that's they what how happened to do before. And they know how to do it best. Why do they need, I don't need anybody else. I'll do what I need to do. Mm. And so what they do is they build the business by through control. In the early stages of a business, you build it through control because you can control it because it's small. And it, sometimes it's nascent. It's not even born yet. And you can control. But the biggest single reason why small businesses fail to turn into medium businesses is because entrepreneurs fail to let go. No. So what happens is it falls apart around them because they can't do everything and they get so busy, things fall apart. So lazy marketing, when you think about it from a marketing con- context, what it does is it says, imagine if we could make you not just a business leader, but a better marketing leader, because you're already a marketing leader. If you're the CEO of a small startup and you've got five staff, unless you've got a marketing director in the business, maybe you've got a marketing manager or even a marketing executive with two years experience out of university, they would be the marketing leader. But most startups don't start up with a marketing function. Mm. And so therefore, the MD is probably the, the marketing leader, but they don't know anything about marketing. And it could be a 50-strong law firm where the senior partner is in charge of marketing. But they don't know anything about marketing. They, they got the gig. They pulled the short straw because back in the 70s, somebody had a picture of them uh, at Woodstock in a tie-dye T-shirt. Therefore, they're the creative hippie. Give the, them the marketing. Yeah, it sort of falls under the press and communications, really, doesn't it? Yeah, Fre- press, comms, marketing, create anything creative, design, or anyone with any of those backgrounds. If you're a senior partner in a law firm, you're going to get lumbered with the marketing brief. But they don't know how to do anything. And so someone has to come along before agencies pile in and relieve them of their budgets and start delivering to one degree or another or not, because agencies can, one of the options of employing an agency is nothing happens, obviously. Before that happens, let's accept that right now you don't have a strategy. So when you go out to an agency straight away, what you're going to do is you're going to let them tell you what the strategy is. Is it possible they've got a vested interest in telling you what the strategy is to make it suit what they offer? It's possible. Mm-hmm. If it's an SEO agency, are they going to tell you that SEO is irrelevant? If they're a Facebook ad agency, are they going to tell you, actually, you don't need Facebook ads? Now, some agencies are ethical and would say, actually, we're not right for you. You need to go here. There's a lot of agencies that will just take the money and do their best. But what happens if you could have a strategy created by you internally? Well, then there's no bias. There's no risk, is there? Because it's your strategy. 
Now, Al's a really experienced marketeer, and it doesn't mean that you've got to be lazy about your marketing. But what he does mean is find your strategy, know your stuff, and then really, it shouldn't take any overthinking, which is where the lazy part comes in. Because if you've got your marketing right, it should be working for you without you needing to put much effort in. And he makes a really good point. There are so many experts out there that are suggesting this approach and that approach that it's It makes me mindful of a conversation I had with somebody on a coaching session only very, very recently. And I had to say, stop listening to all the different voices in your head. What do you want? How do you want it to be? And those are the decisions that you can make in your marketing so that you can then commit to getting on with doing business. Next up are my all-time favourite hero of marketing. It's Marcus Sheridan of the They Ask, You Answer. And it's fairly obvious. I read his book some six or seven years ago now and didn't see the point of blogging. Everybody was talking about blogging on their website. And I was like, why would I want to do that? That's, it's, you know, it's, oh, it's such a lot of hard work. But of course, Marcus gave us nearly an hour's masterclass on why you need to be answering your clients' questions before they even pick up the phone to speak to you or fill in a contact form on a website or respond to a social media post. This uh, manufacturer, all they do, manufacture metal roofs, right? They produce a video on the seven biggest problems with metal roofs. And it did a quarter of a million views in the first two years. And this is such a niche question here. Think about it. What are the problems of the metal roof? And again, the only people asking it are those that are considering a metal roof on their building, on their house. Quarter of a million people now could be their customers because they've resolved the issue instead of allowing someone else in the marketplace to control the conversation. Because here's who you don't want to have control in that conversation is the company that's not doing metal roofing products because you know they're going to be leading folks astray, right? They're going to talk against the thing. Whereas the greatest way in life to resolve a concern is to address it before it becomes a concern. So with me and pools, right? It's like, I know they're going to ask, what are the problems of the fiberglass pool? Are they ugly? Are they cheap? Do they pop out of the ground? These are the types of questions that I have to get in front of if I want to control the conversation. If I want to dictate the terms in my industry, that to me is the thought leadership 101. That's what it is. And unfortunately, a lot of companies just don't think that way. They think, okay, if I introduce the problem, I'm introducing the elephant in the room. But the elephant's the elephant. That's why it's an elephant. It's not an ant in the room. It's an elephant in the room, which means they're going to see it. And so it's your job as the business to address it. Yeah. Now, I asked the audience this morning if they had any particular questions for you. And uh, a very good friend of mine, Jenny Proctor, who I've worked with and, and for, and we go for coffee as well sometimes. She asked a question and I thought, 
this is covered in the book, but I'm going to ask anyway, because I think it's still an important question. And that was around talking about the negative, about the cost comparisons and about the competition and how clients are not courageous enough to start opening up against what they see as insider information. (laughs) <laughs> so what's your take on that, Marcus? I know there's a, there's a whole ream of it in here. It boils down to what is our philosophy as a business. So the ask you answer is a philosophy in a framework. It's a philosophy in that it should eliminate debate amongst leadership teams or marketing teams or strategy teams. It's really simple. Are we consistently hearing the question? The answer is yes then we've made a decision already. It's not if we're going to address it. It's how we're going to address it. That's the key. It's not if, it's how. That's also why I like to joke, Wendy, that really the perfect title to the book to most accurately describe this philosophy is they ask, you address it really, really well. But that's not a very good title for a book. Not a good hook. (laughs) No, it's not a good hook, right? It's not as memorable, but it's actually the most accurate way of approaching it. Because true, you can't necessarily say everything. But what you can do is you can address the questions. And of course, you're doing it already with your sales team and anybody in your organization that sells because you get these questions in that face-to-face in-person environment. And so why do we wait to have that moment. What's so scary is if you wait for them to ask, by that point, oftentimes we've already lost them. There's a good chance we're not going to get them. They're gone because they've been vetting us and they said, "Eh, I'm not satiated. I'm not satisfied. I'm going to go elsewhere. It goes back to, is this your philosophy or is your philosophy? We're going to be selective in what we're willing to answer, even though we know our customers want to know. It's one or the other. It, you, it literally can't have both. And yeah. so once you say, all right, we're going to do this, then it becomes a live in the solution mindset. How do we address it the best we can? If you've not read Marcus's book, I highly, highly recommend it. It also gave me the basis of my own format to my own book because I started to write in Marcus's book like a workbook. I wanted to take notes and I wanted actionable ideas and to go back to the beginning and go through it to put those things into action. And that's the great thing that I'm looking to impart with every conversation is for you to feel motivated enough to go, I need to go and do that. Now, Joe Pelusi. He's the king of content marketing and it fits really, really nicely with Marcus in terms of what do you put into your content? Where do you put your content? Why would people want to read your content? Most companies and I, you know, I used to work with like Fortune 500 companies. So they have billion dollar budgets and they're basically creating content and sending it on every platform and seeing no results. They're just like, oh, great. We can do Twitter and we can do Facebook and we can do LinkedIn and we can do Snap and we can do all these things. So let's just let's throw content out there and see what happens. That's not content marketing. Content marketing is about the idea that I want to actually build a direct relationship with an audience member. 
And hopefully if they begin to know, like, and trust us because of that, they'll buy more stuff. Well, how do you build that direct relationship? You send that audience member. Well, first of all, they have to opt in to getting your content, an e-newsletter, a blog post, a podcast, whatever. And then they do that and you deliver valuable information consistently over time. And then hopefully that turns into a relationship and there's some kind of commerce that, that happens there. Most don't do that right. They don't choose to be great on one platform. They don't choose a content niche that they actually can differentiate themselves and, and cut through all the clutter. But I was talking with somebody, this is a couple months ago, chief marketing officer. And they said, well, why content marketing? And I said, you don't have to do content marketing, but if we all started from zero today, you would just say, okay, I don't want to create something amazing for my audience and or a group of people and build an audience. Who's out there do I'll wait till somebody builds their own audience and then I'll go ahead and interrupt that relationship with an ad. (laughs) So that's the thinking, right? So we do advertising today. And by the way, advertising is very effective. But if you had to start at zero and figure you wouldn't say, no, I want to go interrupt a bunch of people with my ads. You would say, oh, let's create our own channel. Let's create something that's amazing for them and, and solve their pain points on an ongoing basis where they begin to know, like, and trust us. And then when they do that, they'll buy anything from us. It's just a better way. It's like marketing without sales. Like if you do it really right, you know, you've got this wonderful relationship instead of this, this temporary thing where, hey, it's $9.99. Come on, get it. <laughs> or where to throw enough in front of them. So that's the thinking on that. But th- it's not that advertising is wrong or content marketing is right. There's just different ways to do it. Creating content needs an awful lot of thought and creativity but it also needs to be underpinned with a strategy and that's what joe talks about so if you've not heard those episodes forgive the naive approach with ivan from my early days i think by the time you get to joe on the marketing side of things you'll see just how far the show has come and how invested we are in bringing you the very best So in this special episode of making conversations about three things that make a successful business count with sales, marketing and strategy, we've talked about strategy. We've gone back to marketing. Those two really tie really keyly in together. And of course, if those foundations are not set, if they are not understood, they don't translate to your sales process. So we start on the sales side with my good pal, Nikki Pattinson. Put the friendships, put the business friendships first and the brass will follow. And I could tell you, honest to God, you can make a connection with somebody in a millisecond. You don't need to know somebody 20 years. You know, I like to think that when people meet me, they wouldn't know me any better if they spent 20 years with me. But me and Adam Sidwell, the makeup artist, we were talking this morning about how those customers many a time are just uggers before they went. I worked at the airports. I mean, again, we tripled everything we touched, but people would start to walk to the gate and they'd come and hug me and Paul Williams, who is now senior manager at Christian Dior, but we work together and people come and hug you because very quickly we'd melted the reserves. It was soul to soul, not customer to salesperson. That's the difference. And that's the skills that people need now because that's where the planet is going. And I think you're right. I heard a phrase this morning 
we might be physically distanced, but we're socially connected. Yeah. It's understanding that, you know, I'm missing my hug so much. I'm having to hug my husband every day. It's <laughs> a real trial. Even my brother yesterday on the phone, oh, sis, I'm missing my hugs. And I'm like, well, it won't be forever. Well, I hope mm. it won't be forever anyway. It is about people. And I think you're right, Nikki. You know, you've got to touch people's soul, break down those barriers, reach inside, pull them out and go, come on, this is the real world. And meanwhile, while we're not physically together, we've got to get very adept at sending those emails, writing those Facebook posts and immediately connecting on Zoom because the world is becoming ever more saturated. The good thing is that 99.9% of all the people that you meet say the same as everybody else, which is why I call my, I mean, my little strap line these days is be someone, not everyone. And in so many cases, people speak like everyone. How the hell are we going to create resonance and get elevated from those words that everybody says? Got to find out who you are. And that's the end of it. Now, she's an absolute trooper. And... The one key thing that came out of the conversation with Nikki was something that so makes my heart sing. And that is that when it comes to selling yourself, you don't need to sell your soul. You don't need to have a £15,000 process and coaching course behind you. Ultimately, it comes down to being able to Use your personality, be yourself, show up as you because the customer is dealing with you. It's you that will be making those promises, that will be giving them the proof, that will be helping them solve a problem. And boy, Nikki's got a huge personality and I absolutely loved our conversation and subsequent little conversations that we've had since. And boy, has she got a conversation that counted that's worth going back to listen to as well. Now, also in sales, there is the how do you start the sales process? How do you know who the best people are to speak to? Do you know that your thing is the right reason for them to be talking to you? Is it the right time to be talking to you? And those three questions will give you the results in the end. Now, of course, we're talking about telemarketing. And that is marketing over the phone and it's bridging the gap between the strategy and the marketing and starting the conversations. So that very special guest, in fact, was me talking about what I do and how that all started. I needed to leave home at the tender age of 17. And whilst I'd gotten into sixth form to study A-levels, I decided to apply for a job so that I could actually afford to leave home. The job that I applied for said over 21s only. And I wrote a cover letter with my CV saying, I know that you've asked for over 21s only, but I've had quite a lot of work experience working on the market stalls and working in a pub waitressing and silver service waitressing that I think you'll find that I've got an older head on my shoulder and I would 
quite appreciate just the interview experience. I just wanted that. The half an hour interview kind of went for an hour and 10 minutes. I was there with actually a raging cold and a box of tissues. So God only knows what impression I must have left them. But I was offered the job and we did six weeks intensive training. And within the first 12 months of working there, I was looking after national accounts, looking after my own area. I'd got managers rights on the system so I could discount wherever I wanted. And I just loved helping people. And I've just done that then throughout. That was in a sales environment, right? Yeah, uh, telesales account management. And from there, I went on to do field sales. I've done recruitment. I've worked in IT. I've worked in telecoms. A solution selling, really. But I think where I've been successful is I've been quite social about my approach. So they're very jargon-filled industries. And I'm just kind of like, come on, let's see how we can solve this problem so that you understand what we're going to do. There are a lot of people out there that have been sold to and missold, misrepresented, gotten themselves tied into all sorts of contracts and deals that if they sound too good to be true, they are too good to be true. But it's got to be about honesty, integrity, And one thing that my dad always used to say to me, you know, when I worked in the bank in Litchfield, he says, you don't do it on your own doorstep. And he told me this for years and he was absolutely right. The personal account managers, there's an an acronym, we were called PAM. They were all people that were coming in and I was targeted to sell loans and house insurance and stuff like that. And the sort of checklists that they did, you know, to check your money in and out and affordability was stacked so that they were always going to get given the loan, even if they couldn't afford to repay it. And I was going to people, you were coming in for a loan and I was going, don't do it. Don't take that much. You won't be able to do it. And then you'll be in trouble. I was never hitting target because it was, I was giving the right advice. And of course, then we had like the PPI insurance claim back. And I was kind of like, saw that one coming. I can't see people being taken advantage of. Just doesn't sit well. Yeah, it's very, very important. So conversation must be really important then to help your clients. It's the start of every good idea, isn't it? And I think I say this in on my LinkedIn profile. Even if that conversation's in your head, that idea has to go somewhere. And by... Sharing that with somebody else and somebody else, it's like the domino effect that can help you on that journey to ultimately where you want to be, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. You know, if I don't know somebody that can help, I certainly know somebody who will know somebody. You know, it's not just about me being able to help, but to feel that I can help in any way, shape or form is kind of what gives me rosy cheeks. Right. So it's a feel good factor. Yeah. And I like to think that, you know, like my dad was saying, don't do it on your own doorstep, that I've had clients, longstanding clients that came to my wedding and we could go down the pub and we could have a chat. And I know that lots of people say, oh, you know, you don't need your clients to love you. They've just got to trust you. Actually, I want to be loved as well. I want to love them because if I don't love them, How can I really, truly help them? Which goes quite nicely when you go to the madcap Ian Genius, who I love beyond measure. 
who can talk at 150 miles an hour. And if there's one thing that I love Ian for is that he really listens because he wants to be so helpful. One of the biggest frustrations is that they that clients don't see the value of the service. They only see the cost. So clients always see the cost of the service and seldomly see the value. So even when businesses get clients on board, they do so by discounting, by undercharging, charging less than they believe the service is truly worth, or settling, settling for their client taking their silver package rather than the gold. Now, in, if that's the case, if they don't take all of the beneficial services, let's say you had five beneficial services and your client took two, that's good, but they still haven't got the best win because they're still left with three problems that you didn't solve. If they take your silver package, that's a win, but the best win would have been the gold because that's the one that helped them the most. And that would have been the best win for you because you'd have got the most money for it. It's about creating the best win-wins. When people say my sales are good, I'm like, whoop-de-doo. Would you love them to be better? The answer should always be yes, shouldn't it? Yeah. The yeah. only way it can't be better is that someone is perfect. Someone's sales are perfect. The only way to be perfect would be to, you've got a question? I was just going to say, I'd love to hear from any perfect salesperson out there listening now, please. <laughs> I'll show you how perfect sales cannot exist. That's what I mean. can't... It's going to be tumbleweed waiting for the, for the for that person to get in touch. <laughs> this is what perfect sales would have to be. Let's say you you saw ten people with a problem that you could solve. And you wanted to solve. So you got rid of the people you didn't like or weren't open-minded. Ten people you could help and wanted to help, all ten would have to say yes. Then you do five beneficial services. I'm not talking about selling shoes to a man with no legs. I'm talking about five beneficial services. Each one would help the client. They'd have to take all of the beneficial services. That would be perfect. And then as far as the salesperson would be concerned, the business, they'd have to charge an infinite amount of money. Because if they charged 100 and said, my sales are perfect, why aren't you charging 150? Because that's better, isn't it? And they go, well, I'm charging 150. Why don't you charge 300? Because that number never stops. You could always, because you look at it, People in the world that have got expensive cars, they charge more and more money because, but there's no such thing as perfect sales. It doesn't exist. You could always charge more for it. And when I said to him, Ian, slow down, <laughs> I can't keep up with the information that you're giving me. So I'm not really taking it in. I won't be able to do anything about it. What he was imparting, the message that he had was about selling to help people and really we'd, we could do away with the word sales ultimately we've got a solution that solves a problem and if a person's got a problem then we can help them solve it and that's a win-win isn't it so it's about taking the ick out of it and he does that really well and he even starts to talk about money but I'll let you listen and judge for yourself now Social selling has become 
a really big business. And social selling on LinkedIn, which is seen and so far has been proven to be the number one social platform for businesses to be able to reach, connect and engage with prospects. It had to be talking to Bryn Tillman because she's the expert. She has the academy. She has been there from the start. She is even invited into LinkedIn's inner sanctum. It's purposeful engagement, right? So I'll go and I'll go to their profile. I'll click on see all activity in their posts and I'll engage appropriately. I read the post. Don't just like everything and move on because that would be a little stalkish. But if you actually thoughtfully read it and engage, now here's where the conversation, now people go, okay, now what, how do I get the conversation? Well, in this particular case, I look at the topic that my prospect has now shared and cared enough about to put a post out about it. And I'm going to go find a like article or blog post or podcast that about the same topic. So now I'm going to start the conversation around Wendy loved the post that you shared on emotional intelligence. Not sure if you heard the podcast from Larry Levine and the, but if you're, you know, on emotional and whatever it is, right. If you're interested, let me know. I'm happy to send you a link. So now I'm going to start a conversation around the topic you care about. Yeah. So you've moved the conversation from a public forum. You're encouraging them into the direct messaging function to be able to start that conversation in private. Love it. And, and it's about the topic they care about, not what you want to talk about, yeah. what they want to consume. Because that's how we yeah, that's how we start real conversation. And the, the psychology behind that really, Bryn, is that you've cared enough to actually show that you care not just about them, but their topic. You also have an interest in that topic because there's usually something that you can add to that, isn't there, by saying, oh, I'm really, you know, I get really passionate about this sort of thing. And I know lots and that you, you know that passion comes through because you just can't string the sentence together. <laughs> right. Well, you get to edit it before you hit send, but that's good. <laughs> yeah. And that's um, like me, you send lots of voice messages because I love to send voice messages because I think that I like also, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I think that also goes, actually, this person doesn't sound dangerous. You know, they sound passionate. Well, they also sound human. Genuinely wanting to, to help and send me this thing in a link. Yeah. 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 But I actually often will ask permission to send the link. Yeah. So instead of saying, Wendy, here's the link to the podcast, it, you know, here podcast on the same topic. I really loved it because of this, this and this. If you're interested, let me know, send the link because it's a conversation when it's two ways. If I send the link, we're done. Dead. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, <laughs> you now have to say, sure, thanks. OK. Right. If you want it now and and. Clearly, it's a topic you're interested in. So there's a high probability you'll say, sure, now we have a conversation going. It's a back and forth, right? It's And so I think it's really important to ask that permission. It also feels a lot less spammy when you're asking permission to send them. So if you want to know about using LinkedIn and a lot of the strategies that Bryn 
brings forth are things that I endorse and I include. And it was great for me to learn a few other things. But of course, going to wrap up with techniques of having conversations and the delicious Catherine Brown. And I say delicious because she was having a new kitchen as we had the conversation. When she starts to talk about using silence in the conversation. We are dealing with people, aren't we? Always. Yes. I'd like to say for your listeners, when, you've been, when I'm saying, talk about the psychology of selling, I mean mostly for you as the seller. And there's a lot of wonderful people that talk about how people receive information and how to position yourself for optimal receptivity on their part or how to name your price or how to negotiate, things like that. Those are all important other things. What I realized a few years ago is I kept saying, I teach the psychology of selling. I teach the psychology of selling. And it was a client who, who had already bought a number of things from me who came to me and said, you remember in the Princess Bride movie when they said, I do not think that this means what you think it means. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I do not think it means what you think it means. When you say psychology of selling, Catherine, you mean to the seller. And I was like, of course that's what I mean. He said, well, you need to say that. Because that is a differentiation because most of my work, training, coaching, speaking is about beliefs about sales. This is going to sound funny. I have a little bit of mixed feelings about my own company name because I think if a person is a gridded out sort of kind of person, they could hear extra bold sales and they could think she's going to tell me to power through. And that's actually not what I say. I believe we look first at what we think selling is by definition and what we think we deserve to enjoy as a person. And when we get those things aligned, then we are able to take steps, which previously felt too scary but we have to do that belief work and that's where the psychology part comes in. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is about the mindset and setting yourself up for why am I doing this? And if I'm going to do this, how am I going to do it so that I actually feel good about myself? Yes, because my research shows that both business owners as well as the full-time sales professionals they hire all when polled anonymously all will reveal that they feel that the sales profession is pushy and a little bit embarrassing and they are concerned about how they will be perceived in the sales process. And I knew that would be true of the owner seller because entrepreneurs don't start businesses to be the seller. They can't wait till they can hire a seller. But the part that was very surprising to me and important to me, important work as a contribution in the body of kind of what we know about sales now is that you can't build a team where you don't have some of this reluctance inside the team of people who volunteered and took this job of full-time sales because we all, there's bad actors out there. We all know that stereotype. We all want to be perceived as a good human. And so that disconnect between, gosh, I really think my product helps people, but I don't want them to think I'm being too pushy. That dissonance, I believe almost everyone struggles with it. The question is, does it rear its head at your outreach number one, number two, number three, number four, or number eight. Most people 
even that reluctant owner seller who is selling for their own product or service for their own small, medium-sized business, they'll send an email, make a call, and then they'll stop. Mm -hmm. And for a sales professional, they might be able to do three or four times. But I mean, I know you teach telemarketing and I think people who really don't experience dissonance and who can do the seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 times stretched out, that's actually a very rare person because of that, those beliefs and that dissonance that comes up in their own brain. Oh my goodness. I was like, yes, yes, we can use that to our advantage. Too often we like to fill the void with noise because it makes us feel awkward. But in actual fact, that silence can represent somebody thinking, considering and deciding their next move. That can be really, really helpful. So do go back and have a listen to Nikki, to me if you must, to Ian, to Bryn and to Catherine. Because between them, you've got another sales strategy. Out of 99 conversations on different topics, those represent the best of the rest when it comes to strategy, marketing and sales. So they fall under the making conversations about three things that make a successful business count. But I do have to give some bonus mentions to guests that have made me personally apply change in my own business. And that goes to Tom Libbelt with regards to building online courses. Tom is direct, but boy, he knows his stuff. And what he said made so much sense. It changed the dynamic of my own offerings. And Simon Banks, such a lovely guy. And he's all about getting video right. And video is one of the other mediums that really connects with your audience because there's nowhere to hide behind the camera. And he made me think about video in a different way and start to use it a lot more. And Mike Buzinski, thanks Buzz. He actually helped with the websites. It's little things that I hadn't realised. And I read his book, a self-help book, and reached out because I realised that there was a couple of things missing because I didn't know what I didn't know. So those are my bonus mentions and some personal thanks to one of the very first founding episodes and my very good friend who I work with, Jenny. Jenny Proctor, you don't know just how much to support you are to me in having you on the end of the line for a conversation and a coffee. Thank you. There you have it. There are my three things that make a business successful. But I'm really interested now after 99 conversations. Which ones have been your favourites? I want to hear from you and I want to hear what topics do you want me 
to be covering in the show? Is there a special guest that you could recommend? Do let me know. I'm here to find and speak to the people in business that are affecting change and taking the lead. So go, keep making conversations count and be sure to follow the show. Drop us a review, please. And here's to the next 100. Who thought I'd be saying that? There's the 100th episode in the can. Be sure to come back next week as we're making conversations about wealth management solutions count with Larry Sprung. And it's not what you think. You know, a lot of times when people aren't healthy, things end up having to come to the forefront and there's a lot of planning at those times. Thank you.